0: delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at ravages It's the tastiest place in town.
1: Coach Rupp was really the, the father of southern basketball and uh, you could just say national basketball because he demanded that uh, when he talked to some of the sports writers uh, It'd be I remember uh, a sports writer, Dan, uh, came to interview him at uh, back when Georgia Tech was in the term, and uh, a guy by the name of Furman Bisher, and he was a cub reporter for the Atlanta Journal back then, and and uh, he came down to the Biltmore Hotel to interview Coach Rupp, and, and Rupp just really gave him down the road. He says, you haven't got one inch of... Of, of anything about our game, and you got nothing but football and five pages. And he <laughs> uh, about who recruited who, and uh, Kentucky versus Georgia Tech at eight o'clock was over on the uh, want ad section. And he really gave Furman-Bisher the down the road. And Rupp insisted that uh, they get they get the publicity that 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 the team demanded.
2: Thanks for joining us on Conversations with Oscar Combs. I'm Bo Robinson, and I think you're going to enjoy this trip down the big blue highway Oscar and I have been working on for you. The voice you just heard was somebody who was well-connected with Kentucky basketball. He wasn't a number one draft pick or a one-and-done. He doesn't even have one point to his name. But he was on the team, and what he did have was a role in one of the most historic times in Kentucky basketball. And he has the stories to back it up. So grab a snack, sit back and relax, or maybe you're driving somewhere. Let Oscar take the wheel and take you down the big blue highway of memories with his guest, Humsey Yesen. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs.
0: Today we have a good friend, great, great wildcat of many, many years. uh, 87, 88 years old, Humsey Yesen, or nearing that. Humsey, you, you come to Kentucky from Harlan, Kentucky, but you were actually born in Williamson, West Virginia. Your parents came from the old company, Syria. Right. And moved to Harlan when you were fifteen years old. Met a fellow by the name of Wallace Wawa Jones, a relationship, a friendship that lasted the better part of seventy years. How in the world did you end up in Harlan, Kentucky?
1: Well, it's uh you you're on the right track. My my mother and father immigrated from uh, a little village in in Syria, near Damascus, between Damascus, and Beirut, and a former villager had uh, come to from this village in Syria to Williamson. So that's where my dad and mother had, headed. And uh, my dad was a back peddler up in the West Virginia coal fields and the and the Kentucky coal fields. Williamson was right on the uh, state line what
0: what got your father to move to Harlem? was that because it was coalfield field country too and just bustling at the time or well
1: what? Uh, my father was a back peddler and then uh as as things moved along transportation got easier he opened a store uh, a dry goods store and moved to Harlan. and Harlan was very very similar to williamson all coal country eastern western i mean eastern uh in West Virginia, very very similar.
0: Now you get you get to Harlan uh, High School sports, very very uh, influential in Eastern Kentucky at the time. Tell us a little bit about the run in the state tournament. I believe in '44.
1: Yes, sir, in '44. Well, you know, it's during the, this was during the World War. When you say the war years, you always remember as World War Two, and um, Wawa was a big man and unusual for a big man he was only six four, but he was a so-called big man and the coaches when they had a big man if he if usually wasn't very well coordinated and then he was usually the first one that got cut cut off of a, a basketball team but Wawa was a a well-built well-coordinated athlete and uh he uh, he knew the game when we played he was like a coach on the floor and um when he was in the um, the 8th grade um, he was a member of, of on the squad when they 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 went to the state tournament but uh we went to the we won uh, the state tournament in 1944 and and we beat uh we beat Dayton
0: so this is your junior year in high school, you're getting ready for your senior year. At what point in time did Wah think about a basketball and you you both played basketball, you were both offered scholarships at Kentucky. Tell us how that went during between your junior and senior year and and how the recruiting was for Wah.
1: Yeah. Wa Wah was well recruited by every he was well he was recruited from uh from one coast to the other and he was uh, not only his basketball was his best sport. He was better in basketball than he was in football, and uh, he was was a center. And uh, we had uh, an unusual situation. We we played a zone defense, and Wall was the point man, and uh, we played a one-two-two zone, and uh, Wall was the point man, and I and again against a real good Williamsburg team. I saw him make six uncontested basket, picking up, in the back court and guarding a man out of bounds, and and and, not, and the guy wasn't able to put the ball in bounds, and wall up against a good good Williamsburg team back then.
0: Well, you know, it, it was apparently pretty evident pretty early on that he was going to go to Kentucky, but there were a couple of detours on the way. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, there was there was quite. Wall was recruited by he. You know there was a pull here, the pull there. In his senior year, Coach Diddle from Western Kentucky, who was an excellent coach and produced some great basketball teams at Bowling Green, But during Ed Diddle was the coach of the West of the Kentucky All Stars, and the teams reported to Bowling Green about a month before. Uh, the all-star game in, in Indianapolis. And Wawa and Ralph, Ralph Beard was an, on the team, and another guy, I can't recall his name, from uh, from Owensboro, uh, Davis County. And all they decided, after after making a verbal commitment to Kentucky, Wawa and Beard and this boy from Davis County decided they were going to go to Western. Well, when
0: What changed their mind?
1: Well, when Rupp, when Coach Rupp heard heard about it, he went bananas.
0: Well, now was this now before the episode where you and Wah traveled to Knoxville, or after
1: that? No, this this was before that. And then later on, just before school started, a uh, a, a Tennessee, uh, really a, a big big Tennessee booster called Wah and asked him if he. Would come to Knoxville and let and let him his name was Wynn, and they he nicknamed him breezy Wynn and he was a um a wholesale uh, equipment man he sold uh, equipment football basketball all kind of uh sports equipment all over Tennessee, so I accompanied while on that trip. And uh, everybody said it's a package deal. It wasn't a package deal. I was recruited. I w I wasn't the best, but I was I was pretty good. I could shoot the two hand sets. You're not back.
0: you're not telling us now you were the first ever package deal in college. No, well no, I'm Scott. sure
1: that's not true. <laughs> but you know I'm So just, what uh, happened when you got down? I was five foot eight and uh we got down there and this wall went in talked to Mr. Wynn, and next thing I know Wall says we're going to Tennessee and uh <laughs> and uh we Wawa made an excuse that we had to get back and and I think Harlan was playing a football game and we wanted to we wanted to go up and see them play and we made an excuse to get back home and then um we stopped Wawa was dating his his future wife Edna Floyd Ball in Middlesbrough and when uh
0: uh, and you had to go through uh, Middlesbrough to yeah, get to Harland.
1: Yes, that's right. And we had to come through Middlesbrough <laughs> coming back from Knoxville. And when Mr. Ball heard that Wawa had changed his mind and was going to the University of Tennessee, he called Coach Rupp and and uh I don't know, ballistic, I don't know what you'd <laughs> call it, but he went completely crazy. And Coach Rupp came up to to uh to Middlesbrough. And to Harlan later on, because he used to, when he was recruiting WAH, he was every time, uh, you know, our, our, our uh, uh, banquet at the end of the year, Coach Rupp was always the speaker. And, and he thought that, you know, he had
0: uh, Wa uh, <laughs> son. So we move on now, and you're your freshman year at Kentucky, 1945-46. Uh, you're both here on scholarship. And back then, they were pretty liberal, the scholarships. There was no limit of 13 per no, team. No, that's right. Different. But, but, <laughs> there's always a but, aren't there? That's right. But you still had to make the team. Oh, and yeah. by the time you got around to picture day, now you're a manager. And you go in that first year, you go 28-2. and two, You win the NIT over Rhode Island, 46-45. Your composition on that team that year, you had 20 players on the varsity, which is pretty large, but that wasn't unusual back no, then. No, it wasn't then. You had 12 in-state players and eight out-of-state. That was a little bit unusual for Rupp over here. What do you What do you uh, point to as a reason there were that many out-of-staters on the team? Well, Rupp, Rupp
1: didn't really recruit uh, too many out-of-staters. And his recruiting, it's not they, they didn't have a recruiting bu- a budget back then, Oscar. Um Rupp's recruiting style was if somebody sent him a letter and so-and-so was a real outstanding player, uh, so-and-so, well, he, after the season was over, they never, usually never ever went over to see the guy follow up on a letter until after the season was over. And, uh, and then uh, I, I remember they uh, they recruited, I remember Don Schlunt especially the big center that went to Indiana. Uh, and they didn't they didn't start recruiting him
0: until uh, after the season was over. So we go to the sophomore year, 1947. Uh, you end up losing in the NIT championship game to Utah, 49-45. Had a great year at 34-3. And at that era, at that break point right there, the big tournament was the NIT, not the NCAA. Sure. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, the NIT, which was the National Invitation Tournament, was put on by Madison Square Garden, and over a period of years, they used to invite teams from all over the country, and they played double headers in the garden, and um, it was the, the most prestigious tournament. And then the NCAA has hadn't been the the tournament that it is today, like with the the, the Final Four, but um, in that game against Utah, um, Ralph Beard was a, was a great driver, and he didn't have an outside shot. And Utah had a, a little guard by the name of Wat Masaka, who was a Japanese origin, and he played about 15 feet off of Ralph and held Ralph to one point. And um, Rupp, on the way back, and we traveled mostly by, by railroad, then uh, I kept uh, putting the needle into Ralph. He says, well, he says, we've got a boy coming back next year that can hit the two-hand set shot, and uh, there won't be anybody playing off of him. There won't be anybody playing 15 feet off of him. (laughs) So uh, Ralph, under his breath, he's... And I could shoot the two-hand set shot, and both of us played baseball and... During any time we had a half an hour, hour between class or anything, Ralph was out, and he developed a two-hand set shot, and then he was effective outside and inside and was probably the greatest little man in the country at that time.
0: After that, we go into the real, real golden era of Adolph Rupp's legacy at Kentucky. 1948, you've got everything going together. Suddenly, you go to the NCAA title game. You actually annihilate Baylor at Madison Square Garden, 58 to 42. You got a 36 and 3 record, and you're headed to the Olympics. Must have been the time of your life. Yeah, those were great
1: years. And uh, Oscar, you'd see all these publications. Kentucky was on the front of, like Ralph Beard was on the front, the very first Sports Illustrated that was ever ever produced, and uh, the the publicity that uh, the individuals and the team uh, got during those years was just unprecedented. It was it. every time you picked up a publication, they were talking about the fabulous five.
0: Now, your only loss that year, you had three losses, two regular season. Your third loss that year was actually the Olympic trials in New York City to the Phillips Oilers. And uh, then you came back, and tell us a little bit about, you had a three-game exhibition series with Oilers, one in particular that was played on Stowe Field. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that series and how the team was selected. Well,
1: uh the the uh, AAU, which was was the amateur body, like and and Phillips Oilers had, uh, they were actually pros, but they were they were called the AAU amateur tournament. They won they won their division of the AAU, and then Kentucky was the champions of the college level, and then they played three exhibition games uh, to raise funds. And, and they drew real well in the final game was played on stall field and um they took the the old field in the armory in Louisville and transported it down put it on stall field. No rain. And no rain. But we did have dew. <laughs> and and toward the end of the ball game it, it was it was just like an ice skating ring because You know, dew rises, it doesn't fall, but it came up through the floor. And uh, they put towels and everything, but it got to be a skating rink. But the Oilers beat Kentucky, then, and then they were like they were a notch above Kentucky, and the head coach became uh, the coach of the Phillips Oilers, and Coach Rupp was an assistant coach. And, and
0: so basically you yes. had five Kentucky players, the starters, yeah, that made yes. up part of the Olympic team. Yes,
1: And then, then they took Jim Lyon, who was a substitute, Joe Holland, and uh, Dale Barnstable, and um, Lexington and, and Kentucky. They got people to donate money so they could take those guys to uh, London for the, for the Olympics.
0: What a wonderful conversation we're having here. Next, we're going to talk about the Fabulous Five.
2: You're listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs. We'll get back to Oscar and Humsey in a few, but I want to tell you about the O-Man's brand-new website, OscarCombs.com. Now, you can keep up with Oscar and his insights and views on Wildcat Athletics and sports around Kentucky. Oscar may be off the radio, but he's always online oscarcombs.com. So let's rejoin Oscar and Humsey and their conversation about the Fabulous Five.
0: Fabulous Five, the young millennials of today, sometimes misinterpret that for a bunch of guys from Michigan in the late 80s, but the real, real Fabulous Five, the names, Wad Jones, Cliff Barker, Kenny Rollins, Ralph Beard, Alex Groza, you knew them all firsthand with the school, with them, friendships with them. Unfortunately, most of them, all of them, are gone now. What yeah. do you, what do you remember most? Let's just go down the line. Alex Groza. Alex Groza is
1: probably one of the best big men that I ever saw play college basketball. And then, during the, um, during his senior year, he knew that he he may not be big enough to play in the pros. So he started developing an outside shot just really on his own to start taking the ball and shooting it from the corners and the wings and developed into a good player because he thought that he probably would never be a, a pro center. Key Rollins. Best defensive man that uh, whenever we scouted the team, whoever their best offensive man was, In the back line, Kenny guarded in the back line. He didn't guard out front. Kenny Rollins had had the man in the back line, the best man in the back line, the best forward.
0: And your buddy Wawa Jones?
1: Wawa was probably the most competitive player that I have ever seen. He was really a competitor and a fabulous rebounder. That was his game. And, And then he, too, did not have an outside shot, and and started developing uh, a two-hand overhead shot that was very. He was deathly from the corners. Ralph Beard, the best, the best little man that I've ever seen play college basketball. Uh, fast, quick, developed an outside shot. Always took the uh, the best the best guard out front. And always wanted to pick up in the backcourt, and he couldn't get anybody to pick up in the backcourt with him.
0: Cliff Barker.
1: Cliff Barker was probably one of the best ball handlers that uh, was ever in college basketball. He, was, um, he came back, he was the oldest player, and he smoked, and, they, and, and he was. wrapped did didn't like that a bit. Well, he didn't like it,
0: but he couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> I mean, a guy being in the war, it's, been it's pretty the, hard telling tell him yes, what he can do. He was he in a
1: prisoner of war camp, and uh, he had a medicine ball and sometimes a volleyball, and uh, he was absolutely a magician when it came to a va- to a basketball camp.
0: Now, you were I talking mean, about the medicine ball and the volleyball. That was when he was in, in, the, in the, prison- the camp. Yeah,
1: he, when he was uh, incarcerated as a prisoner of war, he was— was on a B 24 and was shot down over Germany. And he always tells the story he said he had a pack of cigarettes and um, he uh, floated down in his parachute and said, uh, A farmer with a pitchfork. Uh, he woke up and the farmer with a pitchfork, first thing he did was grab Cliff's cigarettes and Cliff reached up and grabbed him right out of his hand and said, No, I'll give you one. He handed the Handed the German guy one one cigarette and kept the rest of the pack.
0: <laughs> when when Cliff first came back to UK and you all first met him, did you know immediately the circumstances that he had been in before he came back?
1: Yes, we all knew that. And then, you know, we we were uh, like Ralph and I and the boys that weren't married. We, we had Cliff Barker that was married and lived off campus, and. Um, Wawa had just gotten married and lived off campus. Kenny Rollins was married and lived off c- campus. So uh as far as as uh, we would say about the only time we ever saw them is when we were, we studied together and um went to class together.
0: Did 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 Cliff talk much about his time in the war?
1: No, you he you know he'd tell you if you asked him and uh but um he was he was glad to be alive just to get back home and uh He's an Indiana boy from, I think he's from Bedford, but he was was really uh, a personable guy, and uh, and uh, he uh, he was it was hard for him to keep up with Ralph, and Ralph wanted to always pick up in the back court, and uh, uh, Cliff would say, "Hey Ralph, I'm an old man, man," he <laughs> said, "I can't pick up in the
0: back court. <laughs> he's up a little bit." <laughs> You, you you look back at, at Cliff Barker, it always fascinates me. That was a little bit before my time, but yeah. I read a lot of history about it, and today's game, today's players, and you'll be watching a game in January or February or perhaps March, and they talks about how this kid has gone through all this adversity of a badly sprained ankle, and he's been recuperating this and that. It's a tight game to, uh, tonight, and uh, the pressure's all on. What do you think – cliff barker would say hearing that kind of thing they having he, gone through what he did
1: he he was just he he had nerves of steel he didn't get up or down it, he was just as smooth the same same attitude regardless of we were playing uh notre dame or or powder puff team he was the same every day and you know he played forward inside it 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 was uh uh and he wasn't very big but but he was very intelligent. He could really do a good job of blocking his man off the board.
0: Uh, you, you said you didn't get to go to the Olympics in forty eight, But no. what do you remember most about the Olympics, being here in the States, following them over in London?
1: Well, they uh, they practiced here, and I was with them. And I'm, I thought that I was going to get a shot to go with them. But the president of the Phillips Oilers, they made him the student manager, and he went in my place,
0: so that lo- that loss in the exhibition games cost you. <laughs> yes, that's
1: right, and that was one of my biggest disappointments it was was not getting to the to the Olympics. And uh, uh, but Kentucky, I mean, they really put on put they 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 went on an exhibition in Scotland and all all in uh, and they really put on a show and and uh, represented. He had a key to the city. And uh, in all those towns, and over over in England, they 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 worshipped, and Rupp made a big deal out of the key to Lexington, and they thought that was the most fabulous thing that ever happened to them.
0: Was was Coach Rupp egotistical?
1: Well, up to a point, he he was. Uh, <laughs> I could tell you a little joke about Coach Rupp, and uh, please uh, do okay uh, about. Uh, Egotistical. You brought that word up. Uh, he was uh, Coach Rupp. The Oil Company used to put out a, a a group picture, and everybody's autograph was on there. And Coach, Coach Rupp was a big country ham man, and he 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 had he he had cured his own hams down on the farm. So he was up in Eastern Kentucky and uh, around Corbin and Barberville there, and they passed a the little country store, and they had these country hams hanging out there. So Coach Rupp went in and asked us, as uh, the storekeeper said, um, have you got an ice pick? The guy said, yeah, I have an ice pick. And he said, what do you want with that ice pick? He said, I'm going to take that ice pick and, and stick it in one of those country hams and see if it's cured all the way down the bone. I said, "Yeah, we'll, I'll let you do that." And so, Coach Rupp went through the process, and um, he said, um, "I think I'll take two of those hams," and uh, and Coach up never ever carried any cash on him. He Didn't,
0: didn't usually pick up too many tags, No, did he?
1: No, he had short arms and long <laughs> pockets. He kept me broke just buying him cigars occasionally and, and newspapers. And back then, the nickel and the dime was was big money. <laughs> but anyhow, the guy takes the, the hams down, and uh, Coach uh, Rupp says, will you take a check? And the guy says, yeah, I'll take a check. So Coach Rupp got his checkbook out, and and Wrote the check out for the amount and then signed it with that big, big Adolph F. Rupp and turned the the check around to that guy and said, You know who that is? And the storekeeper says, By God, it better be
0: you. (laughs) 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 So you've won the Olympics, you come back home, and it's time for these old guys. To figure out what they're going to do, now. they got their degree, they played the ball, and then all of a sudden, there's the Indianapolis Olympians.
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's a story in itself, and it's unbelievable what happened. They had a sports writer here by the name of Babe Kimbrough, and the the team, uh, uh, they, all of the teams in the NBA were, were wanting to draft these players. So they stuck together and uh, formed a corporation and uh, formed the Indianapolis Olympians, and they owned their own franchise.
0: Did uh, they become an official member of yes, the NBA? Sir.
1: Yes, sir. Be- they became an official member of the NBA, and um, Maurice Podloff was uh, was the commissioner back then. And um, they played a fast-break type of offenses that was was new to the nba they 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 played occasionally fast but not the fast break like the kentucky fast break and they were a very very popular team they drew real well and they owned themselves and due to you know
0: and then suddenly everything fell
1: apart yeah everything fell apart and that that was one of the the low points really of kentucky basketball and, and
0: tell us what you remember from that, how it happened.
1: Well, you know, I, uh, it happened uh, just by overzealous uh, followers, fans. Kentucky would play a good game, and um, they would would give, give the players uh, or take them out to dinner or give them some money. Did and, all
0: this originate in New York City as
1: no, Coach Rupp? Well, I, I mean, mean with CCNY. Well, they they later on they discovered that all of the New York schools were were fixing basketball games, and, uh, and and the gambling thing was a big factor. And I think back, and even today they don't recognize gambling as as being a detriment to to the all, all of the sports. But uh, then these people were were betters. Nobody knew what a line was, and uh, lines began. And they were betting on Kentucky, and, and a lot of times, uh, you know, they'd they'd win bets, and it was
0: really now. Super- now it wasn't wasn't throwing games. No, it it was, was it was fixing the outcome. In other words, it was point shaving. Yeah, point shaving. you you. You control the game to make sure that if You're the spread was ten, you didn't win them by ten; you won them by nine or less. That's
1: right. And you know, Ralph. I roomed with Ralph, and uh, and he'd tell you if he were alive today. He says, "I never intentionally ever threw a ball away or missed a free throw thing." So I just didn't, I just didn't play as hard. And just like you say, with n- no one really knew what. A line or a point spread was, and and they didn't lose. I mean, you saw their record, but uh, they they just they won under the point
0: spread. And then when that was, did that did that mean the end of the Indianapolis Olympians? Yeah.
1: Well, that they were forced they were forced out of the league, and and the rest of the league owners forced the Indianapolis olympians to sell their franchise and they just got peanuts for it these boys were multi-millionaires and owned a, an NBA, nba franchise which was un, really unheard of yeah. did any did
0: any of the players ever get to play again for never,
1: profit never ever got to play again they uh and not only that you know um i gotta mention bill spivey at, at this point bill spivey was probably the Coming on, is and he was he was accused of, of of fixing games and he he was ruled ineligible to participate in the NBA, which cost him a career.
0: Now, did, when did this happen? Was this in '50, '49, '50? It was it was some of the games were in in
1: '48 and '49, and then it carried over into that other the team that uh, the won the um, NCAA in '51. And uh Spivey and uh Walter Hirsch and Dale Barnstable was, was involved in that in that scandal, but that was one of the and you know, Coach Rupp they used to quote him that they said he couldn't touch my boys with a ten foot pole and, and that came back to haunting.
0: How much did that affect his career or his coaching from that point on because he coached all the way up to seventy two? But he made the statement once, I think, or more than once, that he would never retire until Walt Byers had to hand him that championship trophy one more time.
1: That was you're right, exactly on that, uh, Oscar. They, it it took a lot out of culture up, it really did, and but then it gave him a new life because he wanted to prove that, uh, and this that that he wanted and that's, that's a quote that he had. He wanted Walter Byers to hand him um, the trophy for the, winning the NCAA, and he really worked worked toward that end and, and, and succeeded in doing that.
0: Do you remember him making the comment that he's often quoted as making that never again, as long as he's coach at University of Kentucky, would he play a game in New York City?
1: Well, that's true. Uh, you know, um <clears throat> back in the days when, when we the the fabulous five and they wanted Kentucky to come to, to to the east, and we always had a road trip. We played Temple in Philadelphia, usually on a Wednesday or Thursday, and then went on to New York and played St. John's in the Garden. And um, the officiating back then was so different every region that you'd go into if you went into the southwest or you went in the north, it, it was it was different types of fishing. Kentucky could not run their offense, their pivot post offense which involved a, a a screen and a pretty, pretty hefty screen, and we got called for offensive fouls so many times. And um uh and Rupp Rupp's one of his dreams, he said, was to to have a place and build a, a thing and, and bring one of those Eastern teams in, into Lexington, so he could run his famous number six play the way he wanted it. And uh, he got St. John's in here, and it was the like Rupp used to say, it's the uh, it's the nas- national anthem, and then the tip off. We get to tip off. We're going to run six, and we're going to find yes. out something. I,
0: yeah. I think it was intriguing after the scandal that the NCAA even did the same thing that erupted. They never played another tournament game in New York City no. up until a couple of years ago.
1: Well, that that brought on um, all of the all of the. Well, the NCA said we're we're not going to start start playing. I mean, go on and play. Those double headers, like they did in the garden, and that's when the 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 Kentucky started developing this. The, they brought in teams during the Christmas holidays, and they brought in some some fabulous teams back there.
0: Well, yeah. we'll we'll talk real briefly about yeah. Memorial Coliseum, which was brought in, I think, in '51. Yes. And immediately with that came the famous University of Kentucky Invitational Tournament, which there were hardly no Christmas tournaments, I mean, and Usually there were four great teams oh, yes, in there.
1: Yes, there was. <laughs> that you're not gonna, West Virginia and Jerry West was was always a big att- attraction, and then uh, and then you know, Coach Rupp brought uh, brought uh, Dayton in there, and not thinking Dayton would, he thought there was going to be a cupcake team, but he came in <laughs> to the, being the the number one team in the nation with a big seven foot two. Player by the name of Yule. And now,
0: this was before his heyday, but those first two or three years, there's a young guy by the name of John Wooden brought UCLA into yes, the UK IT. Yes,
1: they brought, they brought, he brought the best. They, they, he brought them the best and they gave him a good guarantee and they couldn't pass it up. But there was some, that, those UKIT, UK IT, uh, it, uh, they weren't a tournament, but a lot of times they just exchanged opponents. Uh, the next day, but they were, they were great, great exhibitions of basketball and really gave the fans uh, something to watch. They looked forward to it.
0: We're talking with Humzy Yesen, manager for four years at Kentucky, but much, much more than a typical student team manager, a historian, uh, a guy who has known all the great Kentucky players. And we're going to get around to some of the modern-day players here in a moment.
2: We're going to finish up with Oscar and Humsey in just a second, but there are multiple ways to keep up with Oscar online. Make sure you stop by OscarCombs.com for his views on the Big Blue. Oscar loves Twitter, and he loves those online polls, and we're not talking about election polls. You can follow Oscar at Wildcat News on Twitter. Not only was Humsey the manager of the Fabulous Five and worked under a great coach, but he was also around another great coach. Humsey talks with Oscar about that other legendary coach and what football practice was really like.
0: Humsey, uh, you were unique, one of the few people still around that was able to enjoy uh, rubbing shoulders with both Coach Rupp and Coach bar Brown. What was it like uh, being on campus with both of those guys and tell a little bit about your interaction with them and how those two worked together or apart yeah
1: well we were on a road trip and when we got back home um uh, the announcement was supposed to be who our new football coach was and i remember and when we got to,
0: this when, in 46, yeah, 46 and okay. then
1: they said it was going to be paul bear bryant well <laughs> nobody's heard of paul bear bryant <laughs> so anyhow um he revolutionized um, the, the the culture, the the athletic culture at the University of Kentucky. Uh, I'd say that our facilities were absolutely archaic. I mean, it was, <laughs> I don't know how you, what era you did, but the, uh, the, we didn't have the whirlpool baths until <laughs> Coach Bryant came here. And, uh, and, uh, our 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 training room was probably as archaic as anything that I've ever seen. Was, did the was,
0: football players and the basketball players have a show social, social life together? Did yes, they, they did.
1: did. You know that's a, uh, they. You know they they had a training table back there where they ate together, and the basketball and football team ate together. And the football team had had three football houses on on um, on Washington Avenue. They had. Um, um, Three football houses, and then one one of the coaches was like a a house mother, and he and his family lived and Mike baliserris from uh University of Tennessee, and a uh, a bona fide all american uh used to be over there but uh we we uh we we mingled with the football team in a long time we we we're real close real real close did
0: did the football players ever tell the basketball players stories about the famous Middlesbrough or military oh, Institute yeah, and yeah. what went on during boot camps and what were the basketball players responses?
1: Well, they, they knew some of the things went on and, you know, Middlesbrough, uh, Middlesbrough was, was, was
0: uh Millersburg.
1: Millersburg. Uh MMI was was uh it it was tailor made for what Coach Bryant wanted. It was it was a, a military camp really.
0: There were there were people who said you went there if you survive you got to ride the bus back. If you didn't they'd hand you a paper bag and you to catch the next bus home.
1: Yeah, it's just like Luke Carabo who used to be one of the coaches on the staff says yeah, we'd we'd uh, go down with two buses, but we always returned with just one. So that was just that's that was the survivors. Uh, coach of football coaches back in in that era uh, had a uh, the wrong impression about drinking water. They wouldn't allow uh, a player to hydrate themselves, and now today it's 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 a rule. For the KHSAA and NCA, that you must let the players have water. But why we didn't have uh, the same thing happen at Texas A and M back then to happen in Millers- Millersburg, <laughs> I don't know. we we just lucky that, that that some we didn't have a tragedy over there, but it was uh, it was uh, up at six o'clock, glass of orange juice, and and uh, a mile a, a mile jog and then two a days, three a days, whatever it
0: took. <laughs> did it, did it surprise people here when he suddenly started winning? I mean, by all stretch of the history, I mean, the run there from 50 to 53. Yeah. Uh, well, will you never know, be matched. Yeah.
1: Here. Well, you know, uh, as good as you are in the history of football, there was, there was bear Bryant. um, and um, Don Ferro at, at, uh, Missouri and, um, uh, Bud Wilkinson at Oklahoma, they revolutionized the game. Uh I remember, um, I used to help the, the manager of football, Frank Sadler, and, uh, they would say, okay, we, we want, anybody wanted a kick, we got any kickers here and they'd, they'd gather up and they had a time watch and, uh hang time nobody had ever heard of hang time and i remember dom fusey who was an excellent kicker and all american he came up to me and says man these guys are doing things so funny says they got a stopwatch and you got to kick that ball and make it stay in the air at least four seconds never heard of it and uh and I remember we just like you say, we were close with a football team in the first road trip to Cincinnati, we went over and ate breakfast with the team and it was going to be a night game and um uh, uh, again, I said the the football was archaic we had uh, army surplus uh, uh bags uh, and your your game uniforms were laid out, and you put put your game uniforms in this um in this duffel bag and then put it on the bus and everybody was in the process of doing that and they all of a sudden they heard hey put those uniforms down and get on there like football players and people turned around and wondered who that was it was coach Bryant and from there on out nobody touched the, touched the uniforms, says, we, we've got people, say, so, y'all football players, and then later on, uh, uh, they, um, I found out that, uh, Graves Cox was, was, uh, uh, measuring the guys up for, um, uh, blue blazers, and I came in and told Coach Rupp, I said, Coach, uh, they're measuring the, the players up for... You're talking about football now. Football, for Blue Blazers. And Rupp says to me, he says, how come me and Harry never hear anything about that? He says, you're here five minutes. We're here from daylight to dark, and
0: you know more than I do. <laughs> it this, gives us, <laughs> this gives us a chance to get into the next discussion. That is the relationship between Bear Bryant and Adolf Rupp. And, and you told me once before about... Rupp being invited to make a road trip with yes. a football team?
1: Coach Rupp just was just he was beside himself one day and he he called uh, he called him Paul all the time. He says, Paul has invited me to go on a road trip. And he says, Of all the coaches in all the years I've been here at the University of Kentucky, there's never been a football coach that's ever invited me to a football game. And Rupp was a big was a big fan of football. He he sat right behind the bench, about about ten rows behind, and he was there for every ball game, snow or otherwise. <laughs> but uh, you know, the rumor was that they never got along, and that that was really a misnomer because they did get along, and they respected one another. And there's a lot of times um, we'd we'd been having practice, and we'd have these closed practices and uh, Coach Bryant had a a, a key to the, the gym, and he'd come in after practice and bring a chair right up to the, the edge of the court on the other side and, and watch practice for hours and try to learn something from Coach Rupp because Rupp, Rupp was the best, and then same way. And they they, they learned from each other. What,
0: what's both of those guys perfectionists when it came to scheduling a practice and going through the same routine?
1: It, they were, they never lost a minute. They the, football was, was on, on the clock and a whistle, regardless of what they do. When the, when Frank Sadler blew that whistle, you changed and everybody moved. And, and same way with coach Rupp, coach Rupp had a closed practice. There wasn't any visiting and, um, I remember our freshman year, we had a boy from Hazard named uh, uh, Towns, and um, he Garland was, Towns Garland Towns from Hazard, Kentucky, a real nice guard, and uh, and we didn't know Coach Rupp and didn't know any of his uh, any of his habits or anything, but uh, they were shooting two man to two man to a ball, and somebody was whistling. And in coach up, and he starts khakis. He started going from one, one group to another, and wanted to know who who was whistling. He finally, found his Garland Towns, and he finally says, "Now, uh, Towns, if you want to whistle, you need to get over here at the music college." He said, we don't allow whistling around here. (laughs) It scared him to death. But uh, basketball was serious. There was nothing. I mean, it was, Rupp had an investment in you. He figured that scholarship was an investment. And um, he was going to get everything out of you that you had in you.
0: Funniest things that ever happened to you in your life? Funniest?
1: Oh, God, let's see. I guess... uh, one of the funniest things I ever had was my senior year, um, I had to recite Hamlet's soliloquy before the English teacher would let me have my my diploma from high school. And that was on the night of of graduation that afternoon, I had to go in her office and recite that so I could get my my high school diploma.
0: <laughs> what was funny about it?
1: Well, it was... It was funny because it scared me to death. I didn't know if I didn't do it, my mother and father was going to be there for, for graduation and not having a graduate there.
0: <laughs> Most embarrassing thing that happened to you in your life? That's, that's a hard question.
1: Uh, um, I, I didn't think about that a
0: while. <laughs> so you never that. had anything embarrassing to happen <laughs> to you? <laughs> um. Best Wildcat you ever saw play the game of basketball?
1: I'd say Ralph Beard was was the best, most exciting, best player that I ever saw play. Best little man, best big man was, uh, I'd say, Groza, and a close second would be Dan Issel. And and, uh, then now with the modern player, Davis, uh, it was something. And and had Spivey got to play his senior year, I think Spivey would have been
0: one of the all-time greats. Best player to suit up against Kentucky.
1: Well, I'd, I'd have to say um, Jerry West was one of them, and then uh, uh, the boy from LSU was was a was a fabulous Pete. Player. Pete Maravich. Pete Maravich didn't get his just due. He was he was uh, twenty years ahead of his time. But he, Pete Maravich was was
0: was the epitome of basketball. Who's the best coach you ever saw to coach against Kentucky?
1: Well, you know, I think Ray Mears was one of the best coaches uh, that the coach against Kentucky. <clears throat> he played. He played. Uh, he he knew what Kentucky was going to do, and he had he he had the players to go against them. And some of those Kentucky-Tennessee games were was some of the best games that's ever
0: been played there. Speaking of of Tennessee and Ray Mears, uh, the toughest place for Kentucky to play on the road during that era, I'd have to
1: say Knoxville, Tennessee. They had an organized um, organized club, uh, a hecklers' club they called it. And they they sat, and we played in. the It wasn't in in Thompson Bowling Arena. That we played in a, in a theater really. And and the state the football players was and this heckler's club was right behind our bench.
0: What was a typical crowd back in those days as far as size when you went on the road in in the, in the now, South? We, it was a sellout every time Kentucky was on the road. It they but otherwise it. But I mean, it was a salary of like two or three thousand fans, or ten thousand? How big were the arenas? Well, the arenas, some of them were were
1: just archaic, and then some of them were, you know, halfway decent. We played in, we we played in uh, Quonset huts at uh, Auburn, at Auburn, <laughs> and uh, we played in, in a gym that was so so dark at Georgia you couldn't hardly see the other player, and no heat in it, and they'd issue you blankets for the and at, at halftime we had to go to the men's restroom. That was the locker room at Georgia.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna ask you about something here I know you'll love to answer. <laughs> okay. Most well I'm gonna give give it give you let you give me two or three names. I don't want zero to one. Most despicable men in strapping uniforms, referees, that you face. <laughs> oh God.
1: <laughs> Well, with some of the best uh, was uh, well. That Lou Bello was was a really a great official. He it, was a
0: explained to our listening audience who, who Lou Bello was and what he did. That was pretty much a, a circus site for everybody. Well,
1: he 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 was very animated, and uh, when he he made a call, he took he took center stage, and. Uh, he 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 was an excellent official but nobody liked these tactics and one of the best f- officials we ever had was was dan tehan who who was the number one uh, uh official in in the national football league in fact he he got me Started in officiating, a basketball officiating, and another guy named Jim Beardsdorfer.
0: Now, you you name the good ones. I know you're an ex-official, yeah. and you sort of protect your own, I'm, I'm trying but to who's, so. who's a despicable one? <laughs> Who did Rupp dis- despise most?
1: I'm just trying to think of some of their names.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, they were unspeakable in Rupp's terms, yeah. aren't oh, they? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> as long as you had a black, black and white striped shirt, you weren't in, 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 in Rupp's
0: let, let's get back to a little bit about Humpsie. Yes, and uh, married, had a rather large family. How yes, many sir. now?
1: Eight children. Eight four children. boys and four girls.
0: You, yeah. you you even everything up. Yes, sir. <laughs> and after your your days at UK, uh, you become uh, work for the state many years. You become a a golfer extraordinary and you got something special coming up.
1: Yes, I've. I, uh, i've been 50 years in the pga of america and i'm really proud of that that's that's one of the highlights of my thing but i got started in uh uh brought uh, uh a mentor from over at harrisburg by the name buck blanket got me started in in uh, in golf and and i'm still a active pga member i'm not a member of a club but i'm a retired pga member and i'm proud of that and uh I did work for the state. That was the last job I had, but I developed uh, Juniper Hill at Frankfort. And, and you coached a little bit at Georgetown. Oh, yeah. I coached at Georgetown College. Uh, Brad Jones gave me a job over there. He's the athletic director over there. And, and who replaced you there? Bob, Bob Davis replaced me. He 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 was in, back in Carolina, High Point then, and he came back to
0: Georgetown. He's a fine guy. How would you like to be remembered years from now when someone brings up the name Humpsy Yesen? Well,
1: uh, that I was a hard worker and honest and enjoyed everything
0: I did. Thank you, Humpsy.